You will observe with me that the church of Jesus Christ in the scriptures is described in many ways using many different metaphors or word pictures in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter, for for example, refers to the church as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, of course, from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Jesus, in John chapter 15, famously uses the imagery of the vine and the branches to describe his intimate relationship with his followers in the church. But it's the Apostle Paul, arguably, who is the most helpful in describing the real intimacy and the full identity of Christ's mystical body, which is the church, referring to us as a temple in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, even a body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, and perhaps most significantly for our purposes this morning, describing us as a family together, Ephesians 2 and verse 19. We are told in Ephesians 2, 19 that Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, previously over in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul had stated, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Listen, for the Apostle Paul, it seems the most crucial reality, the most central of all identities for us who by grace and through faith are now united to Jesus Christ, it is that we are a spiritual family. Say that with me. We are a spiritual family. And indeed, we are. Fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, listen, believing in the gospel of the living Lord Jesus Christ instantly creates new relationships out of old enemies. Embracing the gospel by faith incredibly means that we get the blessings of a new family, a new home. We have a new purpose for living and a new set of rules and regulations and expectations whereby we learn to love and honor the Lord, even as we learn to love and honor each other. What does it look like, according to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, to honor everyone? What does that look like? As I've noted previously, essentially the whole second half of 1 Timothy, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young, enthusiastic minister named Timothy in the ancient city of Ephesus, serving as its newly installed pastor, is all about what godliness and God-honoring relationships look like in the church. It's what we're looking at over these next several weeks. In other words... How should a minister deal with troublemakers and false teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander in the church? Moreover, how should pastors and spiritual leaders conduct themselves handling carefully and effectively both the scriptures and the blood-bought saints of God who are placed under their spiritual care? How should we, how should a comparatively youthful shepherd like Timothy was, comport himself when interacting with older men and older women and younger men and younger women who are fellow members and joint heirs in the gospel of grace? 
And listen, as we'll press into this point over the next few weeks, what is the church's right responsibility with regard to widows and to elders? To those who are vulnerable and to those who are given special ruling authority as the spiritual heads over the local church? What are the implications for gospel ministry for bondservants we find in chapter 6 on the one hand and for the rich and the famous on the other in 1 Timothy chapter 6? Well, again, friends, the second half of 1 Timothy presents us with Paul's apostolic advice, his divine instructions for each and every one of these important questions. And we're going to be looking at those over the next few weeks together. Perhaps you noted when our brother Bill read the text this morning that a particular word seems to have leapt off the page, and it is, of course, the word honor. First Timothy chapter 5 is really a chapter all about honor. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching, the word honor comes from a Greek word that means value or to reveal or revere or simply just honor. Timothy is told here to let every member of Christ's church, be it man or woman, be it young or old, to be treated with due honor, with respect and proper consideration, protection, and even purity in relationships. Why? Well, of course, the answer is because we as God's redeemed and saved children are a spiritual family. We are to love and care and honor and esteem one another in the Lord. Now, this is a curious little play on words, perhaps, by the Apostle Paul, granted that Timothy's own name means one who honors God. The same word, Timao, Timotheus, it means one who honors the Lord, one who honors God, or one who is honored by God. And that's exactly the sort of relationships that we are to have within the church. Timothy, you see, was to personally ensure and personally embody this honorable example among the flock. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 says, Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy, but rather set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This was not just the rule of the road for Timothy. It was first for Timothy, but also for all the saints. But Timothy, no doubt, was to set the good example. Listen, when it comes to how you are to relate to everyone else in the church around you, whether you are the leader or you are a follower, regardless of whether you stand up front or you simply sit in the pew, the Apostle Paul says that you are to give proper honor and respect to those around you in God's family. Not an option. Not an option. This is how God's born-again kids, by grace, ought to behave in the household of faith. 1 Timothy 3 Verse 15, again, this rule of respect, as I'm calling it this morning, this rule of honoring goes for everyone. Nobody is exempted. Listen, nobody has special permission to be a selfish, mean-spirited jerk for Jesus in the church. No one. But I don't think everybody's gotten that message from time to time. I think it's worth noting, importantly, that Paul's advice in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, primarily and firstly are directed to Timothy. 
He has the church in mind, but he has Timothy in view. You see, there's a lot of pastors who will browbeat their parishioners while taking special exception for themselves. Not so fast, as Lee Corso might say. Not so fast, my friend. Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We're just going to look at the first two verses of this passage this morning, friends. Make no mistake, this text is for you. You might not have pastor or elder in front of your name as a part of this membership, but this text is for you. But in its original context and Paul's original thinking is aimed at people like me, people like Pastor Jerry. People like Brian and Mark and Brad and Cecil and John, all of your elders, Paul has us in view first that we might set a godly example for you in the pew and in the church. If you ever find me telling you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself, you need to let me know that that's out of line. Let me know it's out of line. Pastors and elders are to lead the way, both in the message and in the manner in which we live for the sake of the gospel. There is a particular danger and great temptation that I think Paul wanted Timothy and through Timothy, now subsequent generations of aspiring pastors and church leaders to understand. And it's the danger of what I will call rightly handling the word of God while simultaneously mishandling the people of God. As ministers of the gospel, we do not merely exegete pages and paragraphs, and letters, but we actually exegete people and lives as well. That is, we seek to engage and understand and, and, and actively apply lives. See, pastoral work is people work. Pastoral work is people work. Yet there seems, at least to me, to be a disturbing trend in the church today of so-called pastors who love the pulpit but resent their people. There are those who shine in the study but are distant and disconnected from the lives of their, congregant, of their congregants. They are expository heroes, but pastoral care is heroes. Know the word, but they don't know the flock. I believe Pastor Chuck Swindoll is exactly right when he observes that Most of the ministers that he knows have struggled, who have struggled, didn't misdirect building programs or misuse church funds or even mishandle scripture or theology as easy as that is to do, let me tell you. But ministers fail most often because they do not know how to handle or relate to people. I wish somebody would have told me that about 17 or 18 years ago, to be quite honest with you. Pastoral ministry is never one or the other. It is not word work or people work. It is both. The man of God must study the scriptures to know what God has said and reveal it faithfully to the flock of God. But he must also study his church. He must study the hearts and the lives, the hopes and the fears of his people. Or else he is bound to mishandle them. The book of Acts puts it this way, Acts 20, verse 28. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves. Paul says to the Ephesian elders and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The word care is at the very core of who I am and what I do. Care for the church. Ministerial malpractice can occur when we mishandle scriptures, very obviously, but it can also happen just as easily when we mishandle sheep, God's sheep. Spiritually abusive shepherds are just as problematic in the church as doctrinally deviant teachers. I think we have some work to do, brothers, these days. So how does this rule of respect and honor get worked out within the family dynamics of the household of faith? That's really what Paul is getting at in 1 Timothy. Well, again, I want you to notice what I think is actually fairly straightforward in the text, how Paul here states that a faithful, conscientious shepherd will be careful and considerate in his involvement and his interactions with everyone in the church, regardless of what they appear to be able to do for him. They will give proper honor and due respect according to all directions in the family. Those that are older and those that are younger. Those that are men and those are women. There will be specific ways that the man of God will respond to those individuals around them. It might be helpful for you to look at the screen here as we break out the text. Really what Paul is intending to say here. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Epilepsio is a word that is translated rebuke. It only occurs one time, and it's right here. It means to chide, to rebuke, to strike at. Do not rebuke an older man, but parakaleo him. It, it's a word that means to appeal, to, to comfort or console, encourage him. But really, I think those verbs are supplied for the next groups of people as well. It's not just older men that aren't to be rebuked or struck at, but it's also younger men. Do not rebuke a younger man, but encourage a younger man as a brother. Likewise, do not rebuke an older woman or older women, but encourage them as mothers. And finally, do not rebuke younger women, but rather encourage them as sisters. But here Paul gives yet another qualifier in all purity, which probably should take our minds back to 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, where that word purity shows up again. The word rebuke, as I've said a moment ago, is translated in the New American Standard Bible as a sharp rebuke. The word sharp is added by the translation translation committees. It's not in the original, but it is the right idea. It's a sharp rebuke. This idea, again, means to strike at another. It's very closely related to the word in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, where we are told that one of the qualifications of an elder, a spiritual leader in God's household, is that he is not violent, but rather he is gentle. Gentle. But in the context, what Paul probably has in view is not physical violence, but rather verbal violence. Verbal violence, a verbal assault, what we might call in today's vernacular, rough talk. A pastor ought not to give himself to rough talk. Therefore, Paul commanded Timothy to set the believers an example in his sensitive, restrained speech. Restrained speech, a kind spirit, even a gentle tongue. 
whether it was with fathers or mothers, with brothers or sisters, notice that godly talk, especially among godly leaders, is never abrasive or spiritually abusive or verbally corrosive. But rather, elders or aspiring leaders, we don't berate, we don't belittle, or otherwise abuse those under our care. Instead, we build them up. We build them up. We don't speak down to people. We speak to lift them up. A faithful shepherd or servant's words do not seek to destroy, but rather they seek to restore others. We don't put down or call out family members, but we do at times call them up to holiness. And that's the rule of the road in the church as well. Let me just share with you a few verses outside of 1 Timothy that gets to the importance of our speech. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me is an absolute lie. One of the most wounding things we do in relationships is not physical acts of betrayal, but it's actually verbal assaults one to another. Words wound profoundly. This is why the book of Proverbs is actually filled with wonderful words about healing lips. Proverbs 18 verse 12 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, but, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Friend, your words can destroy or your words can rebuild. Proverbs 12 verse 18 similarly says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Consider that the next time you are provoked to a sharp statement, that it is like a dagger going out into the person you are speaking to. Proverbs 15, verses 1 and 2, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to know how to make a little problem a big problem, throw a verbal response like gasoline back on the situation, and you can ignite a small matter into a huge issue. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pours out folly. The Proverbs, the book of Proverbs has so much to say about what we say. Proverbs 25 verse 15 says, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. One of the strongest things we can do is make a soft appeal and let it breathe. That's one of the wisest things we can do. The power of a gentle word can be quite disarming in a relationship. In addition to these wise words, and there are others from the book of Proverbs, we can also add several of Paul's own statements from his epistles. Most uh, notably, Ephesians 4 verse 29. Ephesians 4 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words matter. Colossians 4 verse 6, also highlighting this idea of grace, it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's not that we never say hard things, but it's that we don't say hard things harshly, for no good reason. 
2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25 is really a, a great hyperlink to this passage that we're looking at this morning. There, Paul says in his last will and testament before Timothy, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Notice, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. My life as a minister will not just be measured by the accuracy of my message, but by the tenderness of my heart. Gentleness, gentleness is important in how we respond and treat to one another. But note carefully, friends, that Paul is not prohibiting the ministerial tool of reproof and rebuke. He is not. Christian ministers are reprovers by divine appointment for a purpose. In fact, in the very same chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, let your eyes glance down the text there, Paul will tell Timothy that any elder that is guilty of public sin, that is corroborated by, by witnesses, is to be rebuked publicly. They should be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There is a place and a time for public rebuke. For the hard word. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately in God's good wisdom, rebuking is a part of the pastor's job description. Not one we take joy in, though. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, likewise says that reproof and rebuke are two aspects, related aspects, of the minister's mandate to preach the word. By the way, you know I have no authority outside of the authority of the word of God. That's the only authority ministers have. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reproof, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The idea behind the word reprove there is to expose. It is to convict through the teaching of the word of God. Not your opinion, not rob, what robbed you, rubbed you the wrong way, but rather what goes against God's word. That is the authority uh, from which we are to speak. And then the word rebuke here is the idea of to honor, but rather in the negative, to, to mete out due measure or to censure another person. Paul tells Titus, likewise in Titus 2 verse 15, to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he could not possibly be saying here that it's never appropriate to rebuke because he says in other places that we must rebuke. No, friends, spiritual rebuke is a needful and even terrible weapon in the hands of a holy servant of God. But it must be used selectively and strategically. Its goal is never to destroy, but rather to rescue, to rebuild, to lift up. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, You who are spiritual that is, walking according to the Spirit, should restore the brother who is caught in a transgression in a spirit of gentleness. And likewise, Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The goal of spiritual reproof and correction is always restorative, always redemptive, always remedial, which is a word that means to change one's behavior. Biblical rebuke is a one-part truth and one-part 
tenderness. And I think that's why we are so ineffective at times in our rebuke, because we are heavy in the word and soft in the heart. Because correction done without compassion breeds confusion within the ranks of the church. That's why it ought to be done well. A godly servant wields the scalpel of the holy rebuke like a skillful surgeon to remove devastating deeds and dead works. But his ultimate concern is the health and spiritual recovery of the one who is ensnared in sin. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The goal of our instruction is not being right. The goal of our instruction is love. Charles Spurgeon once told his students that a sensible friend who will unsparingly criticize you from week to week will be far greater, a far greater blessing to you than a thousand undiscriminating admirers if you have sense enough to bear his treatment and grace enough to thank him for it. And man, I'm so glad God gave me so many of those kind of friends right here at Trinity. Well, since we're here... And before we move on, which is just going to be a very small tag at the end of this message, ironically enough, I want to help you know if you are ever on the giving end of a rebuke, how you ought to walk through it. I think, hope this is going to be a practical little few minutes with you. Because I want you to bear in mind that a gentle rebuke is a gracious gift of God. A gentle rebuke is a gracious gift of Almighty God. On a certain level, it is not only my job and Jerry's job, our elder's job, to watch out for holiness. It's all of our job. And so it could be that you are responsible someday to give a word of rebuke to another. Hebrews 12 verse 14 and 15 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord and see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That goes for all of us. And likewise, James 5, 19 and 20 encourages us, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover up a multitude of sins. Let me give you seven very quick practical steps for exercising spiritual rebuke. Number one, pray for yourself and pray for the person that you're going to. To rebuke. I think this goes so often, it happens, uh, it doesn't happen, and it ought to happen, that if uh, you ought to pray James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives liberally or generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. When we approach somebody in a spiritual uh, mode of correction, and we haven't prayed for ourselves, how do we not go in a spirit of elitism? We must begin by praying for ourselves and praying for the Holy Spirit to prepare the heart of the other person that we are going to speak to in that moment. I think Jesus' words in Matthew 7 are so fitting here. Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you measure it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. That's one reason why we have to pray. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly 
to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But notice Jesus doesn't say there that you can leave the speck in. No, you need, God wants to use you in your brother or sister's life, but you must first do the hard work of praying for yourself and for them. Secondly, I'm going to give you seven Ps because that's how I roll around here. You guys know that. Prepare yourself. Pray, but also prepare yourself for the confrontation by, several ways, knowing the facts, evaluating your own motives, and trying to understand the best sense of timing for your, rebu- your, your rebuke. I give you here the, the what, the why, and the when. The what, the why, and the when. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines it. Have you ever felt a fool because you rush to judgment? You were quick to point out a flaw when if you had only paused and gained the facts, you would have saved yourself from real heartache and embarrassment. Seek to understand what has happened before you think it's your place to go and point out the problem. But also, understand the reason why it's in your heart you think it's time to point out that sin. Don't rush to judgment. Don't judge to conclusions, but rather seek to understand the circumstances and the potential sin. Also, know what you want to say before you engage the other person. I think so often uh, we uh, plan to fail when we fail to plan. We need to have a plan when we go to our brother or sister. And also be sensitive to their life's circumstances. It could be an awful time, and they will not hear you in a particular moment if they are going through a a, a loss or they're going through some other heartache. Know the time of the word that matters immensely in one's spiritual rebuke. Thirdly, go privately. Go privately to your brother or your sister. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Go privately, because if you lead publicly, you are only going to result in public embarrassment and shame. The whole point is not to embarrass. It is to rescue. It is to implore. It is to restore. Fourth, be appropriately patient in your efforts at restoration appropriately patient. Some of us are bent towards long-sufferingness. Others are bent towards, I can't wait to get my hands on them. (laughs) Be appropriately patient. I think of Titus chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Not everything needs to be clubbed immediately. So sometimes we need to exercise strategic spiritual patience in the area of uh, church correction. Fifth, point the person receiving the correction to the grace of Jesus. I don't know how this happens, but so often in correction, we are quick to point out the sin, but we are slow to point to the Savior. 
Whenever we are engaging in spiritual correction, we must, it's a great opportunity to preach the gospel. Never leave Jesus out. 1 John chapter 1 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, brothers and sisters, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As fast as you can, point somebody to Jesus as fast as you can. Sixth, in the same vein, provide assurance that God has promised forgiveness for repentance. Provide assurance. Colossians 3 verse 12 and 13 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. They need to know that they cannot out Christ's coverage. All they need to do is repent and come home. And God's abundant pardon stands ready to forgive. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Don't give out false assurance because of an absence of repentance. But where there is repentance, you can guarantee them God's assurance of pardon. And seventh and last, just as you started, you should end with prayer. Keep committing your efforts at restoration to a faithful God in prayer and keep on praying. Jude verses 17 to 25 come to mind here, but you must remember, beloved, Jude writes, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Seven quick steps. And if you missed any of them, I'll be happy to share them with you at the end of the service today. But what about the rest of the time? What about the majority of the time, according to Paul, when such a stiff, stern, direct rebuke is probably not the necessary tool in the, in the hand of a wise and skillful shepherd? Again, Paul seems to, su- to suggest that kindness and compassion and loyalty and purity, these virtues which characterize so often our most intimate of family relationships, should also typically characterize our relationships with one another in God's family the church. Gentleness and respect, friends, wears well, regardless of age or gender or office. Gentleness is a good rule for the road. Well, notice that the first group, just very quickly, the first group that a faithful and gentle pastor needs to respect and honor appropriately, Paul says, are older 
men. Older men. The Greek word that Paul uses here is where we get the word elder, presbyteros. Um, These are the spiritual fathers in God's family. Now, not all older men are biblically qualified and appointed elders. We understand that, but this word is appropriate for all older brothers within the flock of God. Paul's command here is to Timothy that that these presbyteros, these older or aged or more mature men are worthy of respect. They are worthy of not needlessly or carelessly sharply rebuking or censuring them shamefully. Timothy, you would be wise to treat these older than you with honor and worthy respect and proper admiration. Within God's household, we would do well to address those who are older than us with a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of respect. Here's a good suggestion. How would you speak to your dad? Now, I I know that not all relationships between a father and a son are, or a daughter for that matter, are good. But how would you speak to your father? That's how you want to speak to older men in the church. There's... A notion of this deeply rooted in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32, you might know this verse says, You should stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you should fear your God, I am the Lord. Respect was built into the culture of the Jewish people. Likewise, Proverbs 16, verse 31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory, and it is gained in a righteous life. Yeah, no hair too, guys. Come on. What about us with no hair? Well, it's a sign of age. And with that age ought to come a right measure of respect and honor. When it comes to pastoral correction, it's not that you can't call up an older man to holiness. Be, be mindful here. It's that you shouldn't call him out harshly and hastily. And there's a difference. Pastoral correction of an older man in the church should be slow. It should be soft, and frankly, it should be seldom. It should be more like an appeal, like an encouragement, rather than it is an authoritarian or direct exhortation. Get in your place. I can't imagine saying such a thing to a man older than myself. Paul's wise words to young ministers is simply this, treat those older than you with the respect that they deserve. They've been around longer than you. They've seen more. Now, over the years, I've had plenty of experience and a moderate amount of success with correcting older saints. And I'm personally convinced that mostly they didn't realize it was happening at the time. (laughs) There's a way to correct someone that doesn't club someone. There's a way to go at an issue that leaves their dignity intact. You can get your point across without putting somebody down. Understand that, dear friends. It's tricky. Trust me, I understand it. But for a faithful and gentle shepherd, being thoughtful and gentle and careful is not optional. It's mandatory. And remember what I said, this goes firstly for the pastors, but it's for everyone in the pew as well. Be careful how you treat one another. Now, after older men, Paul applies the same rule Same rule, same spirit now with younger men in the church. He uses the the word younger men also in Titus chapter 2 verse 6, if you'd like to cite that for later on. And he says you should treat them as you would your brothers. 
Someone has said that while Timothy was to look up to his elders, he was not to look down on those younger, younger than him as his juniors. I think that's a good statement. Depending upon your experience, how many of you had brothers, this could either be clarifying or terrifying. I'm not sure which one. Well, look, as opposed to approaching one's father, when it comes to conflict, generally speaking, with one's brother, you can be more direct and you can be more moderate in your approach. They're not above you. They are in front of you. They're on, that's why we call them peers. They're on your equal, on your same footing. The heart here, though, is still spiritual help, compassion, and concern, not simply getting stuff off your chest and putting somebody in their place. A man of God must never seek to blow off steam. He must always seek to build his brothers up. That's the rule of the road. Now, I have three brothers. I'm the second of four. And when we were younger, there was a certain pecking order among us. I idolized my older brother, and I often got annoyed at my two younger brothers. Well, spiritual leadership, in spiritual leadership, there can never be an air of superiority because there is no hierarchy among brothers. There is no pecking order among the people of God. We are all level at the foot of the cross. There should be then no ungodly favoritism as well, which I think is implied in this notion of respect. The point here is that honor and respect applies equally to all people, be they older or younger than us, in this beautiful, messy family called the church. Third, Paul says that we should treat older women as mothers. Now, true honor and worthy respect of older women as mothers means that we will approach them carefully with admiration, with a sense of protection, with a sense of appreciation and proper care. And one of the great blessings of being a young pastor uh, that I used to be is all the spiritual moms that have been in my life, telling me what to do, even when I didn't really want to hear it at all. I think Paul himself gives us a great example of this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You might remember that scene. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He says here, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are probably two women that Paul is addressing Yes, and I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Help them. Notice that Paul did not put these two Philippian women on blast, but rather he appealed to them to make peace and so to preserve the testimony of Christ in the church. It's a great example right in the text. One further verse from Paul under this heading, uh, Romans 16, verse 13, a, a very sort of interesting statement here. Paul says, greet Rufus. Jonah, you are almost Rufus. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, so also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I just noted Paul's intimate connection with Rufus's mother as he's writing there to the Romans. The point being simply quickly here that a godly shepherd will engage an older woman gently, 
compassionately and with an aim at protecting her honor and dignity in the rare occasions that a direct confrontation is required. Guys, ladies, we would not embarrass our mom publicly, intentionally, would we? Of course not. So why would we do it in correction? Well, fourth and finally, Paul says, and I think perhaps most sensitively and even urgently today, Timothy is to honor and respect the younger women in the church in all purity. The NIV puts it here in absolute purity. Listen, the idea behind this rare word, which again, it only occurs here and back in chapter 4, verse 12, is really the idea behind moral purity. Moral purity. You see, Timothy's ministerial authority demanded that he be careful not to abuse his office by misusing his position and violating his spiritual sisters in the church. A place of authority like a pastor or an elder has can very easily be manipulated in the life of a younger sister. When it comes to proper honor and respect between a shepherd and his sisters, Paul says there must not even be a hint of impropriety among them, but rather he is to honor them and honor them both morally and sexually. Sexually. Belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ here as I close and a commitment to the local assembly of the church in this glorious but delicate community of relationships needs guarded, preserved, nurtured, and skillful shepherding. In Christ, we are a spiritual family comprised of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And every single person matters. Every single one of you matter. Your dignity matters as well as your holiness. And a skillful shepherd and a wise shepherd knows that. You know, I recognize here as I end that some of you might be listening to this message and it seems completely foreign to you. You might be thinking to yourself, man, I wish I had a family like that. You don't feel like family. You might be here this morning and you feel alone. You feel like you are a thousand miles away from the household of Christ. And that's because perhaps you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, brother or sister, I have good news for you. In one decision, you can have an instant family. You can have a family of brothers and sisters, of moms and dads who love you and want to care for you and see you grow up in the Lord. This crowd right here can be your spiritual family if you humble yourself, repent of your sin, and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come home today. Make a decision for Jesus Christ today. He loves you, and he died for you, and he wants to know you and have you a part of his family even today. For the rest of us, I want to encourage you to take some time this week, maybe even today, and reflect over the condition of your relationships in this church. Consider how you, as a younger man, are relating to older men or older women as mothers and fathers, or younger women as sisters in the Lord. Perhaps older men or women, consider how you're treating the younger people of the church and ask the Holy Spirit to point out anything that needs to be remedied. Because the rule of the road is love that issues from a pure heart and a clear conscience for the glory of Almighty God.
Amen? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, there's a lot there in two verses. But your word is truth. And we need every jot and every tittle of it. So Father, we thank you for what you have spoken to us this morning. We pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would enable our hearts to receive it with joy, with also careful attention and reflection. That we would consider this message not for the person sitting next to us, but for the person that we are before you. And O Lord, I pray that you would help us as a faith family to continue seeking to outdo one another in showing honor and loving each other. Even as Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he says in Matthew chapter 12, here they are, they who do the will of my father in heaven. These are my brothers and sisters and mothers. In light of that glorious gospel truth, Lord, we are a spiritual family and we want to honor you as such. As we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.